This is a Valerie Moss original podcast. Chapter 17 Metallic Clink Thorn was at last reconciled to the passing of summer, not by anything that had happened, but by the simple change of season that told her it was gone. There had been frost on the ground for a month now, and one or two light snows had fallen. The corn was gathered, the hogs were butchered, the potatoes were dug. In the kitchen, houseflies dropped dead from the ceiling, and ice crusted the basins in the early mornings. The children had put on their long underwear and shoes and stockings once more appeared in Timberley Schoolhouse. The spicy sweetness of baked pumpkin was in the air, and the baked turkey that had strutted so arrogantly all fall was meekly roasting in Millie's huge oven. Then, without warning, the day before Thanksgiving, she wakened in a sweat under a pile of blankets and dashed to the window to find the sky a warm summer blue. Cows trotted friskily down the lane as though it were spring. Bells tintinnabulating, the creak of a pump handle, the brisk clucking arguments of hens, the neigh of a mule in the pasture were again the sounds of summer. For a moment, time flowed backward. She was racing to get dressed and out to the woods to gather berries for Richard's breakfast. Nothing that was had ever been. She had dreamed the last three months. Then, recollection stabbed her. This was only Indian summer, that sly deceiver that came every year to taunt you with false promises of spring, long after spring was dead but the poignant joy of her awakening was with her all day. Nothing seemed quite real. She moved in a dream as unsubstantial as the smoky haze that softened the bare bleakness of fields and woods so that the loss of their verdure was forgotten. But beneath this ecstasy of unreality was a strange sense of foreboding. The entire Tomlinson clan gathered at Timberley for Thanksgiving, because of the extra company, Thorne slept downstairs in the trundle bed. She did not rest very well because Cousin Ludie in the alcove snored all night. Throughout the wakeful hours, Thorne heard strange noises all over the house. In the room adjoining, the sound of some one moving about was so disturbing that once she cried out. Who slept in the south bedroom? She asked at breakfast. I heard someone moving around in there, in the middle of the night. The visiting Tomlinsons exchanged shocked glances with the members of the household. It seemed that no one had slept in the downstairs bedroom. There had, in fact, been a slight argument over the matter, with both Turner's and Mitchell's declining to occupy the room in which their sister-in-law had died. You must have been dreaming, child, said Miss Anne. And there, the whole thing would have dropped had not Judith interposed. She felt that Thorne should be made to retract her false statement. Richard immediately took exception to his wife's remark. Thorne is not well. 
She's a bundle of nerves, and no wonder. She has no regular place to sleep. Whenever there's company and somebody has to be inconvenienced, it's Thorne who's made to sleep downstairs in a bed that's too short for her. This was a direct thrust at Judith for her refusal to vacate the bird's-eye maple room. No more was said. Richard opened the Bible for morning prayers. He began reading at the 15th chapter of Luke, the 8th verse. Either what woman, having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house, and seek diligently till she find it? Something dropped from the big limp book in Richard's hands and rolled briskly across the table. Everyone heard the metallic clink as it struck the butter dish and caught the gleam of silver. Every eye saw it lying bright and shining on the tablecloth. It was a fifty-cent piece. For a breathless moment there was not a sound. Then there came a surprised gasp from little Raji. Oh, that's one of Mama's silver pieces that she kept in her purse. Millie, always present at morning prayers, groaned. Oh, Lordy, that's what she was looking for last night, and rolled her eyes fearfully. There was general commotion then. Children cried and adults talked excitedly. Even Richard changed color, and his wife was seized with a fit of choking, or was it laughter? It was some time before order was restored to the breakfast table. Richard put the money in his pocket and told the children to finish their meal. This money didn't come from your mother's purse. The chest is locked and I have the key in my pocket. He explained to the sons. And that was the end of the incident for the time being. But the following day, Miss Anne decided to take advantage of the warm spell and ordered the chicken house cleaned. The oldest shook boy was hired to help Jesse Moffat. It being Saturday, the children all trooped out to watch them work. The Turner boys, who were finishing the holiday week at Grandmother's, organized a game of Indian, with a log hen house for a fort. It was while scaling this bastion that Jimmy Turner made a discovery. Look what I found! He cried. A pile of photographs had been tossed on top of the hen house. They were pictures of Ricky's and Raji's dead mother. The children ran into the chicken house to join the two hired hands, in as weird a treasure hunt as could be imagined. Photographs were found in all sorts of places, hidden under piles of straw, flung far back as the roosts, as though someone had been hastily bent on putting them out of sight. Tintypes, types and some of a latter school of photography mounted on cardboard. All were likenesses of Abigail and Abigail's relatives. All had reposed until a few weeks ago in the album on the front room table. Ooh, wait until father finds who did this, said Ricky. Someone was going to catch it. Youthful faces paled with pleasurable enjoyment. All but thorns... Thorne, who had been sitting on the fence with Nancy Turner, watching the game of Indian, had a premonition that she was going to be charged with this mischief. As the dinner bell was ringing by this time, Jesse Moffat and the Shook Boy 
dropped their work and went up to the house. The children at their heels like excited terriers. Look what we found in the hen house, said Jesse, and laid the photographs in front of Richard. Who did this? He demanded sternly. We don't know. We don't know. The children chorused loudly. Judith came into the room at this moment. What is it? She asked. Here are the pictures I put away in the chest, said Richard. Jesse found them out in the hen house. Judith regarded the photographs without comment. Are you sure you locked the chest? Asked Miss Anne. They went immediately to the south room and examined the chest. It was locked. On being opened, its contents appeared to be intact, but the album was empty, and the half dollar was missing from the purse. Anne Tomlinson said, Someone stole your key, Richard, and put it back later. How could they? The ring is never out of my pocket. Judith said very innocently, Spiriting a key from your pocket, darling, would require a sleight-of-hand performance. Richard's face flushed ominously. Whom are you accusing, Judith? No one, dear. I was merely making a joke. Thorne sat down on a stool in the corner. They were back in the dining room now. It seemed to her that she had lived all this before. She had only to close her eyes and see, not Judith's firm, ripe contours, but an emaciated figure in a chalice wrapper, screaming. Now do you believe she's a witch? Judith was not screaming. She was smiling sweetly, but she had caused every eye to turn suspiciously on Thorn. Why not put a direct question to everyone? She suggested to her husband. Anne Tomlinson promptly added, Now is the time to do it, son, while we're all gathered for dinner. Richard, thus coerced, deliberately began with his own children. Ricky, what do you know about this? Nothing, father, except finding the pictures. Raji, have you been playing games with these photographs? No, sir. To Nancy, Jimmy, and Frank Turner, he put the same question and received the same answer. Even his brother Will was not passed by. Do you know anything about this Will? Will said, I didn't even know the pictures had been put in the chest. And gave his brother a sly grin, as though he guessed the reason for their removal. Jesse, you're usually the cut-up around here. Is this your idea of a joke? On and on went the questioning. It sounded a little absurd now to everyone. It sounded absurd to Thorne, sitting wretchedly alone, on her hassock. Because, of course, no one believed these people guilty. But Richard doggedly pursued his inquiry. Peter, how about you? As God is my judge, Mr. Richard, I never saw them pictures before. Mother, do you think Millie could have had anything to do with this? The idea was ludicrous, but Miss Anne went out to the kitchen to question her old servant. Judith! Richard turned to his wife, and their glances met combatively. You said every member of the household should be examined. Have you any light to throw upon this business? Judith said, still sweetly. Nothing, except to remind you that you've overlooked Thorn. I haven't come to her yet. You've come to her now. He looked across the room where Thorne sat motionless on the stool. Her face was pale, but no paler than his. Cricket, do you know anything about this? I didn't do it, said Thorne. Then that's all that matters, said Richard. 
But Judith was not satisfied. You know, Thorn, you're quite clever enough to remove a key from a man's pocket without him being aware of your action. Thorn said in a curious tone. Yes, I know that. Other people know that too. Judith said sharply. What do you mean by that statement? Richard interrupted. She said she didn't do it, Judith. Why can't her word be accepted as well as the others? Because she is insinuating something. You're not insinuating anything, are you, Cricket? Thorne's face was so pale now that she looked almost ill. It was very hard trying to explain with all of them staring at her. She said, I've had a feeling something like this was going to happen. Make her tell what she means, Richard, by those veiled hints. How could Thorne put into words what was so clear to her own sensitive perception? That sense of foreboding which had underlain her strange ecstasy had meaning now. This was what had been moving toward her, this incriminating circumstance. Judith would convince Richard of Thorne's guilt and to lose Richard's trust and friendship would be a blow which should satisfy Thorne's bitterest enemy. She said, I've been too happy lately. I was afraid something would happen. That's superstition, said Judith. Yes, I know. Thorne wrinkled her smooth young brow with the effort to make her meaning clear. I think whoever played this trick was hoping it'd be late at my door. Judith's face flushed with anger. Be careful how you make accusations, young lady. I'm not accusing anyone, said Thorne. She looked about the little group, noting the suspicion in the farmhands' faces, even in the wide, clear eyes of the children. But you can see how well it succeeded. You all believe I did this. We believe nothing of the sort, said Richard. No one else spoke. Miss Anne came back from the kitchen to report that Millie was ready to swear on her own innocence. Richard informed his mother of Thorne's belief that someone was trying to incriminate her. And I, for one, think it's the explanation for this mischief, he said. And the stolen coin as well. Miss Anne asked Thorne, Who do you think has this spite against you, child? Thorne shook her head. It was not clear whether she refused to answer or did not know. But Judith suddenly decided to terminate the discussion. We're not interested in theories. We're interested in facts. Thorne, by her own admission, is the only person who could have stolen your key, Richard. And Thorne, by her own admission, did not steal my key, Judith. So that's the final word upon the subject. But it was not the final word. There was one thing more which Judith seemed impelled to say. She waited until bedtime when Richard was comfortably ensconced with his book, a candle at his elbow. It was not flattering that he had reverted so soon to his old habit of reading in bed. The ritual of hairbrushing no longer engrossed him. Of course, it's quite plain what Thorne was hinting at this morning, Judith began. He looked up from the page he was reading. What did you say about Thorne? Why, it was quite evident, said Judith. Thorne would have had you believe I played that silly prank in order to incriminate her. Richard looked not at all shocked, only interested. Yes, of course. You are the one person who has the perfect opportunity for taking my key and replacing it while I'm asleep. Judith dropped the brush she was wielding. She did not speak until she had retrieved it. My dear Richard, are you accusing me? 
He smiled innocuously. You are quite as likely a suspect as Thorne. You had the opportunity and the motive. What motive? Those pictures of Abigail were a source of irritation to you. You might have decided that you would feel happier if they were out of the house altogether. So you stole down in the dead of night, and Thorne, sleeping in the trundle bed, heard you and cried out and gave you a frightful scare. I don't believe you meant to incriminate Thorne at first. Your thought was to punish her for the shock she had given you. Abigail's purse was at hand. You filched a coin from it and slipped it into the family Bible where you knew I would find it. Later, your own fear of discovery prompted an accusation of Thorne, which I believe, or hope, you're ashamed of. His voice was pleasant throughout. Judith turned back to the mirror. The hand that held the brush was trembling. Of course you don't believe a word you're saying. Whether I do or not, my dear, we'll say no more about it. Thorne knows that I'm convinced of her innocence. It's not necessary for her to know any more. I suppose she put that idea about me into your head. Oh, no, said Richard quickly. I'm sure Thorne never thought of you. Poor child. She was afraid of Abigail. Abigail, said Judith sharply. And then she laughed. Do you mean the silly thing is afraid of a dead woman? When you consider how she was persecuted by Abigail, it's small wonder she should imagine the woman's spirit was hounding her, playing pranks from beyond the grave to incriminate her. Judith said. Her purpose in advancing that theory is to frighten me. Now you're being ridiculous. Richard slumped back on his pillow. Why should Thorne try to frighten you? You may not have noticed, Richard, but Thorne has never liked me. As far back as a year ago, when she shared this room with me, I was conscious of her reluctance to sleep with me. That's interesting, said Richard, and picked up his book. Because Thorne had the same idea about you. She felt that you didn't like sleeping with her. There, said Judith triumphantly. You see how she lies? He slammed down the book with a force which unfortunately did not register on the soft feather bed. Thorn does not lie. She has too much sense. She has no sense at all, as you ought to know. You've been coaching her in arithmetic. She's only precautious emotionally. It was out at last, the word that held significance. With its utterance, two spots of color burned at Judith's cheeks. Richard said curiously, What do you mean? I mean, I'm beginning to understand why Abigail didn't like her. Abigail wasn't as crazy as people thought. In some ways, she was smart. Suddenly, Judith realized she was talking to the man who had been Abigail's husband. She went on more lightly. I suppose it's growing pains with Thorn. She'll stop behaving like a spoiled child eventually and turn into a respectable member of adult society. At least, we hope so. In the meantime, it's rather uncomfortable for the people who have to live with her. Richard laid his book on the night table and blew out his candle. When Judith came to bed, there was no response from the other occupant of the big four-poster bed. She wondered if he really suspected her guilt in the matter of the photographs. Doubtless, his startling accusation had been a random shot, more or less facetious. If he knew how accurate had been his aim, he would probably never speak to her again. She had skated on very thin ice for a moment. How stupid had she been? How childishly stupid to risk her happiness on such a paltry issue. Abigail herself could have behaved no more senselessly. She seemed to have been driven. 
as on her wedding night, to act as Abigail would have acted, to do the thing which, if discovered, would utterly alienate her husband, as if she were bent on wrecking her marriage. Heaven helping her, she would never be such a fool again. She would overcome the silly feeling she had about Thorn, the stranger feeling she had about Abigail. She would do nothing henceforth to jeopardize her marriage. Stay tuned to the end of the show for a preview to next week's episode. Hey everyone, I'm Valerie Moss and I'm the narrator for this mystery book, Project DF, as well as producer and director. You can find me at ValerieMoss.ca and check out my podcast, Valerie's Variety Podcast. The show is about eating, reading, and creating. I live in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Here's the cast of characters for today's show. Hello, my name is Linda Moss, and I was on my mom's podcast, Valerie's Variety Podcast. We did a few episodes together of London and Mum. Anyway, I did Thorn, a.k.a. Cricket, on Project DF, not known as I'm not telling the real name. <laughs> Thank you. I hope you like listening. Bye. Hi, my name is Adam Abrams, and I'm from Vancouver, B.C., Canada. I'm the voice of Old Judge Shane, Tom Stickney, and Jimmy Turner. You can find me at adamabrams.com. That's Adam, A-B-R-A-M-S, dot com. Thank you. Hi, my name is Carol Sin. I'm from Jacksonville, Florida. I will be the voice of Miss Ann Tomlinson. You can find me at carolsin.wordpress.com. You can also find me on YouTube and Instagram as carolsin. Hello, my name is Joseph Moraney Jr. I'm the co-host of the Star Wars podcast, The Wars and More, and I voice Henry Shook. You can find me and my podcast over at thewarsandmore.com. Hi, my name is Peggy Davis, and I'm the voice of Millie. I'm a retired teacher. My husband and I just moved from California to Missouri a few weeks ago, and we're still in the process of finding a home and trying to get settled in. You can find me on Facebook as Peggy Davis Franco. Hi, my name is Rain, like the weather, and I will will be playing the role of Abigail. Uh, I have a YouTube page called WWE What If, where I talk about wrestling reviews and my anger against some storylines that I can't stand. Hey, everybody. My name is Rafe Telsch. I'm from Roanoke, Virginia in the United States, and I am the voice of Richard Tomlinson. You can find me on the podcast Have Not Seen This. Hi there. My name is Sam Sprunger, and I am currently in Indiana, and I am playing the miscellaneous man at the school meeting. Hi, my name is Zane Telch. I'm from Roanoke, Virginia, and I'm the voice of Ricky. Music for this show is by Text Me Records and Leviath called The Black Cat. Cover art image by Danny Muller. Podcast trailer and cover art designed by me, Valerie Moss. Here's a preview for next week's show.
How else can you explain the brutality of war, or the lust for power, or selfishness, greed, or murder? Either there's a devil in the world, or there's one in every human breast. It was quite a success. We must have that fellow Fairchild out again. Heartened by daylight, she took the situation firmly in hand. People like that are amusing. Her knowledge of God, once confined to Pete McGraw's profanity, was now all mixed up with her feelings for her friend. That he could yield a principle to please his wife troubled her. Disclaimer. Margaret Eckhard is the author of this book. The audio drama is based off of. Copyright 1941 by Doubleday Publishing House, now owned by Penguin Random House, who only supports current authors who checked all available resources and directories for literary rights agents and contacts and found nothing. We tried to track down errors of Eckhart's, but to no avail. We reached out to the Indiana Library, who houses the largest amount of articles of Margaret Eckhart. They provided us with a renewal ID, R579915, and had consulted directories for her errors and contacts. However, found nothing beyond Doubleday Publishing House, which was a dead end. We searched extensively for the copyright holders of this book to get permission to make the audio drama, but were unable to find them. And if anyone has any information about the copyright for the book or the rights holders, please reach out to me.